All right, good morning, everyone. We will pick back up in our study on Martin Chemnitz in Caridian at page 78 with the new material. We are on the topic of faith and will be for some time. Last session, we spent some time um, on the question of whether faith justifies on account of it being a virtue. Does God look down and say, well, you believe in me, that makes you virtuous, where someone who doesn't lacks that virtue. That's the one virtue required. And of course, all that is then is making heaven entirely dependent upon the person. So that's rejected. Nonetheless, then we need to discuss what faith is. And we've spent some time, we've seen Chemnitz speak in these terms, the faith that receives all that Christ is, so that faith is like that cup that receives the wine. It is the thing that receives Christ with all his merits, blessings, and benefits. And that should fairly well lead us into the new material. Question 161, is it right to say that we are justified by faith alone? But before we get there, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so once more, question 161. Is it right to say that we are justified by faith alone? Answer, absolutely. For in this article, Scripture, from time to time, uses, repeats, and emphasizes exclusive particles. That actually, that language comes right out of the Book of Concord and becomes a technical phrase. So it is shorthand, in fact, uh, for the whole Reformation. Exclusive particles, that is, those particles of speech that exclude works. So there are, as Chemnitz points out, in Scripture, from time to time, uses of these exclusive particles, which are, e.g., freely by grace, Romans 3.24 and Ephesians 2.8, according to his grace and mercy, 2 Timothy 1.9, Titus 3.5, freely by free gift, There's some German there for you, Romans 3.24. So what you can see already in these phrases from Scripture is freely. If someone gives you something for free, then that language excludes any sense in which you paid for it, merited it, earned it. If you did, it's no longer free. It's predicated upon some condition or contingency. So... It's good, even at this level, to just analyze the word free. 
So freely and then by grace, grace is similarly biblically defined as being apart from works. If works are involved, it's no longer grace. So freely, that word, as well as grace, that word, these are particles that exclude works, particles of speech that exclude works. Okay, so then, not of ourselves. You can see that particle of speech saying, it's nothing in me. Not even the faith that God has given me is a virtue that I can point to and say, on this basis am I justified. It's not of ourselves. Not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. The next phrase, without the law. Of course, the law is this do and this do not. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. So the law is of its very essence of human action. And this is without the law. Similarly, without works. So not by works, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And without works, Romans 3, 21 and 28 and 4, 6. Chemnitz then comments, all these exclusive particles are comprehended in that one proposition, we are justified by faith alone, and are thereby simply, clearly, and aptly set forth, whence also this proposition was used by nearly all the fathers. So Chemnitz here echoing the way that The book of Concord does its theology. Here's what the scriptures teach. Here's what the fathers teach. Here's what we teach. If you want to condemn us, you're likewise condemning these fathers. You're likewise condemning the scriptures. But this is a shorthand way. Of course, it's good to have a verse or two memorized, but it's a shorthand way when facing someone who insists that we are justified by works You can think to yourself, what's that little phrase? Ah, yes, the exclusive particles. And that will draw to your mind concepts like freely and grace and not by works and apart from the law, etc., etc. All right, a little further, we're going to get a sampling of these church fathers. I'll pause and see if you have any reflections. But, you know, again, I expect this to just be bread and butter for most of us as Lutherans. Unfortunately, very rare to be sure if one is considering American Christianity at large. These things are very poorly understood. Basil in a homily on humility This is perfect and unspoiled glorying in God when one is not exalted because of his own righteousness, but acknowledges that he lacks righteousness and that he is justified alone by faith in Christ. Wait a minute. Basil said faith alone? That's a long way before Luther, about a thousand years before Luther. Okay. Hillary on Matthew 9. This was forgiven by Christ through faith because the law could not yield for faith alone justifies. Oh my goodness. Are there any more? Lo and behold. 
Ambrose on Romans 3. By the way, as an aside, this is the reason to dust off your book of Concord and go back and reread the Apology, which is not us saying we're really sorry, this was a bad idea. But <laughs> Apologia, defense of the Augsburg Confession, the Apology or defense of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4 on justification, because you'll get a whole bunch of scripture and a whole bunch of church fathers teaching exactly what Lutherans have taught. Ambrose on Romans 3. They are justified freely who do nothing. Neither give in return. They are justified by faith alone, a gift of God. Chemnitz then remarks, the same on the call of the Gentiles. Uh, Oh, no, maybe this is in regard to Ambrose still, now that I look at this. I think it is. This has been determined by God that he who believes in Christ is saved without work, receiving remission of sins by faith alone. And then last but not least, tucked in there, Jerome on Romans 10, God justifies alone by faith. It's a common ploy of modern Roman Catholic apologists to say Luther added the word alone into his translation of the Bible. He added to the book, be scandalized and don't listen to Luther. What they don't tell you is that this was a common thing that was done. Interpreters before Luther had done it. And as you can see, the church fathers have talked this way throughout all of the church's history. So it's a really dishonest move that they can make because people are ignorant and easily scandalized by the idea. But once you understand these things, what Luther's doing there isn't scandalous in the least. To say nothing of the fact that in translations, you're always and ever adding words simply to make the grammar make sense. Or to drive home the particular emphasis or meaning of the verse. Okay, so hopefully this does nothing but strengthen and encourage you with the fact that the church has always taught that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. All right, let's pause there and see if you have any reflections or comments. Okay, one second. I'm just thinking of... uh human nature in general and why we have such trouble with this, uh, you know, doctrine uh, of, you know, faith alone, it's a gift. You know, uh, humans, I think, and I'd like you to comment on this, you know, if you're invited to dinner somewhere, there's like an obligation. I need to return (laughs) a dinner. Yeah. Um, Expressions, anything, you know, in life that's free is not worth much, you know, these kind of things. is that built into the human nature, or has our environment built that into us, or what? Yeah, I think it is built into the human nature, almost to a... To- well, I, okay, there's, I, I believe that there's something subtle here that has to be teased out, because you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What's, what's woven in with the bad is the good of a sense of justice, and a sense of balance, and a sense of reciprocity. Those are good things, but those good things have been perverted and twisted deeply within us into 
what the Lutherans will call the opinio legis, which is just this inborn, natural, almost, well, inescapable apart from the Holy Spirit, belief that we can justify ourselves before God. And that by extension, we can and should regularly justify ourselves before men. And in fact, so much of what we do is not really genuine love for God or love for our neighbor, but really love for our own reputation. And so, now, if we're talking about, just to clean it up a little, if we're talking about a fallen man, that's really all there is. So, it's completely inseparable, the idea that I would do good to somebody, but would do good to somebody altruistically. Where that really bears itself out is in doing that good, if it brings harm upon themselves or their reputation, they won't do it. It's where this great line, I wish I could remember where I ran across it just recently, I think it was in the Book of Concord, says that, they're in, that, the, that an unbeliever is too weak to do any truly good works. It's like, what on earth does that mean? Because the best of works are works that are done to your harm. The best of works, the true test of works is, are you going to, take, are you going to do this good thing and then suffer on account of it? That's like, we've crossed a threshold from, you know, are you doing a good work that everybody's going to pat you on the head for? Okay, well, that's fine. That has some, val- you know, some value, some merit. But are you willing to do a good work where you know you're going to suffer for it? Okay, that's a different question. That's a different strength required. Okay, so drifting off kind of into this tangent, but to bring it back to the main thread, the point being, I think a lot of this, you know, justice, reciprocity, sense of balance, sense of fairness, has gotten perverted in the fall and has skewed the way we view everything to the point where we, by nature, struggle, and here I'm talking about the human race in general, struggle with the concept of grace or any gracious thing. As soon as somebody gives us something freely, we instantaneously feel like we have to say thank you, um, we have to return the favor, we're in someone's debt, etc., etc. And like you, you brought up, you know, even when you go to someone's house, you, you know, you bring a bottle of wine or you bring flowers or, you know, you, very frequently anyway you do. And kind of part of the beauty of becoming closer friends with someone is some of that stuff can stop, <laughs> which is more familial in nature and actually more open to the graciousness that is really baked, that God has baked into creation and that we're all going to be, you know, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth and are visiting each other, we're not going to be bringing you know, quid pro quo gifts or writing thank you cards out of a sense of obligation or, you know, all that kind of stuff that we do and expect and expect others to do. So, yeah, thank you for highlighting that. There's a kind of existential reality behind our, our inability as human beings to really grasp grace. And I, maybe the greatest tell on this is just our, our dining room tables, because that's a miracle every single day, even if it's, you know, maybe the Cocoa Puffs have gone stale, or it's, or it's not your favorite flavor of chicken breast, or whatever the case may be. It still is a gift from God that it's on your table, and it's to be received as a 
pure and gracious gift. Yeah, please. Um, first off, experience is the mother of all learning and education and whatnot. We have been enculturated, too, that when you're accepting help, you are in a very vulnerable state. Nobody likes that. Yeah. Nobody Good likes point. to be vulnerable. And so we lessen that by bringing the wine or the flowers mm-hmm. or the whatever. We reclaim some of that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so it's a sad, and I think it has to do with the fall. Yeah. It, yeah absolutely. You know, that we just can't accept. And, and it's the real stumbling block to realize, you know, that's why it's so hard for some people to really accept that this is a free gift from God. Oh, we have to. Oh, I mean, all wow. of society tells that we get we grade small children. Why should? Why are we grading kindergarten S plus? Yeah. S minus. Yeah. You. You yeah. know. I mean, come on. Anyway. Well, and really closely related to that is why we hate the real reason why we hate aging. So the real insidious part of aging. That I think is, if it's not at the, if it's not the core, it's right wrapped around the core. But I'm, I'm going to postulate that it is the core, and that is that you lose your independence, you lose your ability to contribute, you lose your ability to pay back. You, you are taught by God, and this is, this is like his final catechesis for Christians. It's the final fatherly discipline, which is where he starts to take away that ability from you, even unto extremity, where you have to depend on others for everything. Which, which again, in God's beautiful sort of poetry, takes you all the way back to where you were when you were a baby. You just know it for the first time. And... You, I think that we have to equip ourselves as Christians. I mean, unless we want to sort of rage against that and be miserable until our dying day, we have to recognize that that's something God is doing and working in us and upon us. And ultimately, it's a crucifixion of that part of ourselves that says, I'm needed, I'm necessary, I contribute, I give. You, we are frequently brought to that point in which that diminishes and can even on a long enough time scale become zero. To the point where you're not feeding yourself, you're not changing yourself, you're not doing anything. You think, what do we immediately think? We immediately, oh, that's not a that's not quality of life. There's no quality of life there. That's just pure hell on earth. Why? Why such a visceral reaction against that? And I think that, I think that what I'm trying to put my finger on is as close as I can get to the core, and it's the destruction of that opinio legis. It's that destruction of the independent I and the quid pro quo that's implicit therein. Not one person on earth likes the idea of I'm just going to have to be taken care of. Please. I think you're already touching on it. It's she okay. It's no accident that in this world, pride and self-confidence, and you know, they're all viewed as strengths. 
whereas Christ teaches us to be humble and to go lower and to serve another, I'm wondering what can we understand about the nature of the Trinity? I think you're just talking about it with, you know, it's killing that not human part of us to be more like God. But when we consider this, what do we learn about God when serving another before ourselves? Is that the true nature of love? Or what can we, how are we supposed to think about that as we go lower? Because we don't want to be perceived as weak, but I think my mind was kind of saying maybe this is God revealing more about himself through humility, but that's not weakness. It's true love, I think. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm just not, I'm not quite sure I've been able to locate. Could you, could you maybe repeat again at uh, maybe the key point or? Well, I think there's two parts. One is how we view ourselves and as we're practicing piety and learning to be less selfish okay. and less prideful. And that's, that's us as the others talked about being vulnerable and practicing these things that are right Mm -hmm. versus the world saying we're weak. And so that's us focused, but there's probably a a deeper layer on God revealing himself in this because that's not what the world values. Mm -hmm. It's what Mm -hmm. God values. So if the Trinity is constantly, you know, supporting each person of the Trinity and putting them forward and putting glory to the other, mm-hmm. what can we learn about God from that? And that's what I was asking. I mean, maybe that's yeah. the true essence of what love is like. I guess as mm-hmm. a parent, if you do everything for your child and then they stand up on stage and get accolades, you're mm-hmm. happy for them. You're mm-hmm. not saying, well, I did it. I, yeah, yeah, right. I'm the one that sacrificed, you know, the baseball moms that are like, look what I did. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm just wondering if there's something deeper there besides how we focus on ourselves. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely. I, I mean, I... I think your points stand on their own and don't require commentary. Uh, although maybe I would say that, yeah, at, to tie it into the point that I was just speaking to, the end result of God being God is that if you will have him, you have to have someone who takes care of you and takes care of everything. You have to be his child in the truest sense of the word. And if you won't have that, then you won't have God. That's, this is the place in which every, you can say a, a statement like, to be Christian is to be humble. You can't be a Christian and not be humble, at least at that most profound and deepest level of, if I'm to have a relationship with the one true God, it's by definition one-sided. Or it's at its essence one-sided. The way a parent is to a child. You know, you're going to care and love for your child no matter who they are, what disabilities they have, or it's one-sided in that sense, right? Same thing with God. Now, you know, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of, as is my way, speaking on one side of the coin. Of course, if you flip to the other side of the coin, it's good to write thank you notes. <laughs> it's good to be grateful. It's good to be respectful. It's good to be um, 
it's good to ask yourself, like, what shall I render to the Lord for all these benefits to me? Okay, the other side is all of these things are good. It's just, can the good be perverted? Yes. Can the good be swallowed up in this bad? Yes. And that's really my point. It's not to say, hey, stop writing thank you notes. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, and it's, you know, all these things are good. They're just twisted and perverted by the opinio legis, this constant self-justifying, this constant independent, this constant, no, we're even. We're, we're good. Oh, you gave this to me, but I gave that back to you. We're, we're square. We despise the idea of being those, you know, ultimately who receive, and that's at the essence and heart of our relationship with God. The, the humility and the selflessness and the serving and lifting up others is right. I think the parent, you know, with the kid on the stage is great, um, and I think that's a great example. It also shows that the role of a... So I think we get in our minds when we think of selflessness toward another as that means I give up anything, and everything, and there's just no limit to it. It's got to be a limitless selflessness. But that, I think, is an error. I think parents to children know that their service is within proper vocational bounds. I'm not selfless toward my child when they say, okay, uh, I want to stay up and watch this movie until midnight. I'm not saying, I go, okay, well, I need to die to myself and be selfless, so I'm going to put away my parental you know, intelligence and say, go for it. No, the service, the laying down of oneself, needs to be within the confines and bounds, the order and structure of the vocational relationship. And that's how God is to us. It's the difference between being the servant of all and a doormat. You know, Christ isn't a doormat while he is servant of all. So there's a, there's a vocational office and distinction that God doesn't let himself be trampled or mocked or anything else, and yet he is the servant of all. He will serve us only in those ways that are ultimately good for us. Christ doesn't, you know, die to himself for the sake of the church and then say, hey, church, what would you like to do? He dies to him, himself in order to win for himself a bride, of which he remains the head and leads and guides that bride even as his own body unto eternal blessings. So the selflessness too and the humility always takes on the proper shape and form. And it's actually a lack of humility when we transgress those bounds. There's an arrogance involved when we transgress those bounds. I think this is the toughest pill to swallow for Americans because we as Americans think that all structure is bad and all hierarchy is bad and all lines in the sand are bad. And so we interpret Christianity through that lens, not realizing that we're distorting it. Christianity is hierarchical, is ordered, is bounded in many points. And true humility is identifying what those are and then being faithful unto them. I mean, that's truly setting aside your will and your desire for the sake of the desire and will of God, which, of course, is good and perfect and right. Okay, please, I see you. Uh, Addie comment, too. When you teach the way and give the way, you're always taught. That you have to charge something. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. yeah. And so if 
I extrapolate that, you know, when Yeah. And um and so we can teach that, but mm -hmm. yet we think we can do all the generic things. Sure. And I think that's important at the heart of the gospel. I, I think the church in America misunderstands the gospel on this point. And I mean even though even though the the theology in various church bodies will betray this very point. Generally speaking, in, Christ, in American Christianity, at least Protestantism, there's this idea of uh, you're, you're saved freely. You're saved by grace. But then that cheapens it. So what is the biblical antidote to that that's really, frankly, baked in? And that's the crucifix, front and center, that's Christ crucified. It's free to you because he paid this ultimate cost and price. Now, as, as the American Protestant church has removed the crucifix and removed Christ crucified, then it just becomes free, and free is worthless, and so then it ceases to be about the gospel at all because that's not appealing, and it becomes about how to live your best life now, how to do these 10 steps to a better marriage, and... Um, 15 steps to becoming a more godly parent and five steps to doing your taxes as a Christian and so on and so forth, you know. So the, and then, and then of course, that's where, you know, we're just untangling the whole mess that is 21st century American Christianity. And then you kind of get the radical Lutherans swinging in on their vine to save the day saying, oh, look, it's all become law. Let's get it back to um, the gospel and and, but in so doing, it's, hey, forget that law. That law stuff's bad and completely wrong and completely unhelpful. Let's just get back to uh, the gospel. And even then, amongst them, there's, there's uh, many who don't want Christ crucified for you. They just want forgiveness for you, which kind of takes us full circle back to where we started, back in Protestantism. So, yeah, it's a mess. After all these years, you know, Lutheran and listening to at faith is, I mean, salvation is uh, faith alone. And, and then I think, oh, okay, that's easy to understand because it's a free gift. But when I, I encountered last week or last two weeks, Kind of like a test to myself that I don't really understand how free or how is God giving us the free gift. Yesterday, somebody passed from Alabama and they said, Oh, thank God. She's now better. She's in a better place because she's with God. And I said, What level of belief? Or it's even for myself. What extent that I can truly believe that I am a believer and I'm going to end up with God. And the whole family is saying, no, please not. So, well, the person that passed, passed. But the rest of the people that 
other circumstances that I just met somebody. Oh, well, I just reconnected with a family that was. I was. I am the godmother of one of the child, and she, the lady is Dahlia's godmother, and her oldest son is has terminal cancer. Cancer, and she went through two cancers, and they're all sick. I'm trusting in God. I have faith in him that I know that my son is dying, but I have faith. And then she said, I'm listening to Joe Osteen to give me more strength. And my son is praying to Father Peel to help him with his hardship moments. And my heart cries because I love this family. We have, we have stand in front of God, baptizing our children, you know, promising that we gonna raise these kids or, or, or to share or to teach them the word of God or, or educate them. Um, and I, I don't know what to do. I, I feel like God, they have faith in you. Hopefully, God is merciful. Just not only being, well, even we are Lutheran, we still have their weird mindsets and thoughts and craziness. As they are, you know, so what's the difference? What's the level of belief or to be church? They are baptized. They Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, thank you for those comments. I probably won't be able to address them all and certainly not do justice. There is, there is this aspect of our conversation that it's like a razor blade where we're tempted to fall off onto one side or another. And that is, we want to say, to stay on that, on that razor's edge, as it were, exactly what the scriptures say. That we are justified as a pure gift on account of Christ's shed blood. Okay? That's the goal. Now, it's very easy to say, yes, but you've got to have all these doctrinal things right, too. And you probably should be living a moral, fruitful life as well. And you kind of start to add in all these things. And it starts kind of innocently, but it really spirals out of control pretty quickly until everybody's in a crisis of faith. Okay, so we have to return to, it's a pure gift. It's a pure gift. Just receive it, <laughs> right? Okay. Then the other side of the razor's edge is, well, that just means that then doctrine doesn't matter, and morals don't matter, and nothing matters. So you know what? What's this denominational nonsense? And why am I trying so hard? And why do I care? And I need to just let go and let God, and I'm going to be a sinner, and he's going to forgive me by grace. So what these two paths are is legalism and license or lawlessness. 
That's what those two things are. Satan is more than content to have you fall headlong into one or the other. Now, it gets very, very difficult, depending upon the subject, depending upon the circumstance, to walk that razor's edge. In fact, with man, it's impossible, only with God. And that's the goal, is to simply be aware of these two ditches into which one can fall. And to recognize that even the scriptures them speak, sorry, even the scriptures themselves, even God's own living voice, speaks differently to different people in different circumstances on these questions. So it is important when dealing with someone who says, oh, well, I'm just justified by grace as a free gift, and I believe that so much, I'm going to prove my belief in that by living a horrible life contrary to the will of God, but I'm proving my orthodoxy because I believe it's a true gift. And look at how much I believe that in contrast with my life. Okay. I mean, how would you, if you were that person's father, speak? Because that's the way that God speaks in his scriptures to souls and circumstances of that condition. And it sounds like, are you crazy? <laughs> You're going to go on sinning that grace may abound? What? I thought it was a free gift. Anyone who thinks that faith in that kind of free gift has no faith at all, even the demons believe. Such faith isn't a living faith at all, but faith bears itself out in righteousness. No one's justified apart from... In other words, you start sounding like James or Jesus at various places. Because James, after all, sounds identical to Jesus. Now, you're talking to the other side of the coin where it's like, okay, well, you need to have done X, Y, and Z and extricated these sins from your life and put in these virtues, otherwise you can't get into heaven. Well, now you're dealing with legalism and you've got to have a kind of teaching that says, no, Abraham was justified. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees while he was still the son of an idol maker. God credited righteousness to him purely on account of the fact that he believed in God, that he believed what God was saying was true. By faith, he is justified, and we're all justified in him apart from our works. And here there's even resonance with James. Who does he cite along with Abraham but Rahab, the prostitute? He's hardly doing a meritorious works righteousness theology when he brings in Rahab as his example next to Abraham. All right, so we see scriptures speaking to these two different errors, these two different conditions of the soul. There's even a sense in which the doctrinal component takes place. I know we did the moral and sort of the lawful and the lawless. And doctrine takes place too because, you know, yeah, you're justified by grace through faith apart from works. And that includes like what you know doctrinally. There's not a doctrinal exam. St. Peter doesn't say, okay, have a seat. Let me call over Paul. Let's see what you know. Let's see if you can pass. So we're going to avoid some sort of legalistic frame when it comes to doctrine. Well, what's the other side of that, though? Doctrine doesn't matter. Believe whatever you want to believe. All roads lead there, and as long as you believe it's a gift, you're saved. In fact, doctrine is law. Doctrine is confining. Doctrine is, all, you know, trust me, I've heard all this nonsense from Lutherans. Absolutely not the case. When you're dealing with an antinomian when it comes to doctrine and 
I don't even know what that would be, and I'm not going to invent a word. But this, I, this whole like Rick Warren, deeds, not creeds, okay, that is a creed. It's inescapable, and your creed is you can believe whatever it does, you want, it doesn't matter. Or your creed is doctrine doesn't matter. That's your doctrine. That's not the Bible's doctrine. The Bible's doctrine is it absolutely matters. And you have to have the true God, and you have to have the true Christ, and all these other things. Okay, so, but what we see is the same exact dynamic, the kind of antinomian, anti-doctrinal, it doesn't matter because it's all gift. We don't want to fall off onto that edge, but nor do we want to fall off onto the other edge of you have to have memorized and bested Francis Pieper's three-volume set of Christian dogmatics in order to get into heaven. We can see even on the question of doctrine, there's a legalism to be avoided and a lawlessness or a doctrinelessness to be avoided. So the real art and practice is trying to apply this to souls and people as we encounter them. And that kind of goes back to, I hear your struggles and your pain, and sometimes we don't know how to do this or what we're doing isn't being received. And those, that is the perfect content for our prayers. Lord, I don't understand why this isn't being received. I don't understand why they've fallen into this. Have mercy upon them. You can pray the temporal prayers for healing or whatever the case may be, but then you can also pray those prayers that no matter what, that you would keep them in their baptismal grace, that you would wash away these errors that are so evident and not hold them against them. That's the kind of prayer we want to pray as we intercede for one another. Okay, sorry, that was a long chit-chat. Um, in my experience, I remember if I was supposed to say something to these people, they didn't make it so that And it's like time stood Oh God. So I did. And we had a long discussion. And just recently. And it happened again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great thought you bring to our minds that we want to be prayerful in our approach and ask God to use us if he sees fit, but entrust the situation to him even if he doesn't, or we don't have great words, or the words we thought were great fall on deaf ears, yeah, to be, to be in conversation with God in prayer 
is very, very important. And it's, you know, it's something even we do as pastors when you come to visit us. Sometimes when we ask you to repeat, it's because we're praying vigorously, God, I have no idea what to do, no idea what to say. <laughs> Please bring something from your holy word to mind. <laughs> so, yeah, that idea of uh, being in conversation with God and entrusting ourselves to him, and that can take a lot of the pressure off, too. Because, again, as I, as I sometimes joke, and I don't mean this flippantly, but as I sometimes joke, God is not going to put a person's eternal destination on the contingency of whether or not Rody had his second cup of coffee that morning. So this sort of heightened, over-dramatized, over-romanticized, I've got to have the right word this moment, this second, and I've got to see the fruits of conversion work this moment, this second, is more Hollywood and, and, and uh, American evangelicalism than it is based in true, solid faith in God, that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is not going to let his will be subverted by some foolish thing that I've done or failed to do. We are his servants, and he's employed us that our joy may be full. And we could even say at that point, full stop. The Lord's good and gracious will is going to be done despite our shortcomings or failures. So we can take a big, deep breath of God is God, and he's in charge, and I'm his tool, and I want to be a useful tool to him. But I'm not the end-all, be-all, and if it doesn't happen this moment in this way that I think it should, we can be far from despair. He's still God. He's still in control. So that can give us the breathing space that American evangelicalism and this kind of breathless, dramatized, you know, spiritual EMT moment where you're running in to save the day, and if you don't, it's all over. We can get rid of that. Yeah, please. I I think I understand this. But when we go all the way back to, you just described it as a razor's edge. Sure. And that razor's edge is that Christ is the narrow door. Yeah, exactly. That, That's a that biblical way of putting it. did it. Yeah, and this was you. Vicar's sermon where it's Christ did it, and what God wants us to do is believe in him, that he did it. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's yeah. all of it. And when you give the analogy of, you know, now we add, but... You know, we want to obey him. We want to follow him. We want to believe in him. We want, we want to do it right. That leads us to the pride of adding things on the wrong side. And then the lawlessness is to say, well, if he did it all, then if I sin, I'm forgiven. You know, the, so I love the analogy of the razor's edge, but it's helpful for me to remember that that's the narrow door that is exactly. Christ. So even if we consider someone else... As Estella's examples, we can worry that, uh-oh, you know, they're way too far off. If they're, if they're baptized mm-hmm. and they know that Christ is the Savior and that they're saved because Christ died, that's it. I mean, all the other stuff are forgivable sins, I guess, if we, if we repent. But, you know, when we start <laughs> believing, I'm going to stand in front of God and I'm going to tell him he was a good teacher and look how good I did, that's the trouble that's problematic yeah, but other than yeah. that a baptized person is saved mm-hmm. right yeah. i mean 
Yeah, right. And it's we can kind of relax. It's that, narrow, it's that narrow path, and there is rest in Christ. So we can talk about this from all different facets. One that I always return to from Luther, it's just very helpful, and it's, it's just right in keeping with this teaching. It just takes a slightly different angle on it, and that is that the gospel is for the conscience or the soul, and the law is for the flesh or the body. So his point being, you don't let the law into the conscience that it starts to make your salvation contingent upon your obedience or your knowledge or something like that. So the law has to stay out of there, out of the conscience, and the conscience has to have nothing but Christ, nothing but the gospel, nothing but grace alone. And then the conscience finds rest in that. And that's, I think, what you're getting at with the, you just let go, you breathe a sigh of relief, it's okay. And, you know, like... All, whatever good I did, whatever good I failed to do, whatever evil I did, whatever you know, evil I shouldn't have done, you just, it's, all a, it's all a wash in the conscience because the conscience says my righteousness isn't based on that. My entry into heaven isn't based on that. It's not that I don't care. It's just when the question is getting into heaven, I don't care because the only thing I care about is Christ and his righteousness. Right? Now, what happens if you let that gospel into the flesh or into the body? That's when you get the, hey... Um, it's anything goes. Go on sinning that grace may abound. Use Christ as a license for sin. Um, so the real, the real spiritual battle, if you want to couch it in these terms, is Satan's constantly trying to get you to put the law into your conscience and doubt your salvation. And he's trying to get you to put the gospel into your flesh so that he can wreak havoc on your life and the lives of those around you. It's just a brilliant way of putting it. It's a different angle, but Luther, I assure you, is not saying one bit different than what I'm trying to articulate here. Uh, just two different pictures on that theme. And so, you'll, you know, again, depending upon your vocation, if you've got wife, if you've got children, if you've got grandchildren, if you've got, you can, you can kind of start to see that and start to um, recognize, okay, you know, my child at this moment has the law in their conscience. It's time for the gospel to come and clear that law out. It's time for some well-placed in Christ, there is no condemnation and similar verses. Or you maybe see in your child the opposite. I'm a Christian, but I can live however I want to. And screw you, Dad, for saying otherwise, you legalist. (laughs) Okay. Now might be a time to see that the gospel's moved into the flesh and say, is that what Christ would have you do? If you are freely justified by grace through faith and that you are, would he have you use this great freedom and this great gift in the way you're using it? So it's a way of recognizing where the gospel has gotten into the flesh and extricating that in such a way that you know, it no longer does damage. Please. So uh, I just had two points to make, just Please. by way of encouragement, is um, there were times in my own life where I would listen to maybe, I'm not saying a Joel Osteen, but like that, um, but my faith was strong, I understood the truth, but sometimes there were difficulties that I was going through where a message, some aspect of a message from a Joel Osteen was helpful, it was healing. So it, it's not necessarily that somebody's listening to it means they accept everything he says. So that's the first thing I wanted to say is sometimes, um, you know, and I can name num- numerous authors where 
probably most of you would say, well, that, that person's a heretic. Could be. But God was working in me, and I recognized those aspects, but there were some aspects of their message or their book that was very helpful to me in my faith. So that's something to think about. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. We should, we should give thanks and praise wherever the gospel's found. Yeah, it could be, right, that there's something. There was a, yeah, there was a televangelist that I ran across one morning. Um, he was a, like a Chinese guy or something, and I, I kept listening. I listened to the rest of his sermon. It was terrible. But the part that I tuned in for immediately was this glorious presentation of the gospel. I mean, yes. just knocked it out of the park. Yes. So God be praised that that's there, um, even if he's actively subverting the devil and having a joke with the devil. Yeah. So and then the second point I wanted to make, uh, just by way of encouragement, is also there's people in my life where I can relate to more. just the pain of what, what, I don't, what do I say? And I think that, you know, having grown up in the whole Calvary Chapel era, like you mentioned, Pastor Ch- uh, not Calvary Chapel, American evangelicalism, it was, I felt it was on me to say the right thing at the right time or the person's going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. That's not our job. Yeah. That's not our responsibility. Christ is the only Savior of the world, not me. Mm-hmm. However, I had a feeling for my dad or, or somebody that I need to say something, you know. Um, and prayer, mm-hmm. absolutely, you know, praying for the person. Or give me words to say. You know? mm-hmm. And then sometimes I had opportunity to say something, sometimes I didn't. But I saw God working as I was praying in their lives. And they use other people. We're not the only ones. They're usually, sometimes we just plant the seed, right? So I can feel the pain. I understand it. But God is way bigger than, you know, (laughs) he's working in these people's lives, especially if we're praying on their behalf, even if we never get to say anything to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's just a couple of things I wanted to answer. Yeah, great points. Thank you. All right. Let's get, you know, onto the second question of the day. Page, I know I could say lots more, but I mean, this is important. This is critical. It's, we're right at the heart of Christianity and right at the heart of uh, our own care of soul and the care of soul of others and right where the devil likes to attack. Question 162, when Paul says that we are justified without the law or without the works of the law, does he exclude from justification only Levitical ceremonies, or works done without the Spirit and faith? Answer, Paul speaks of the whole law and chiefly, moreover, of the works of the Decalogue. So this was a common uh, medieval Roman argument against the exclusive particles which is when Paul says, apart from the law, they want to, talk about adding to the scriptures, they want to add in the word ceremonial law or civil law, not apart from the moral law, namely the Decalogue or Ten Commandments. And Chemnitz here is just, you know, using the scriptures to blow this out of the water. When God says law, he means law, and chiefly at the heart and center of that law are the works of the Decalogue. Especially when you're thinking like into Christendom, when the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel have been set aside, you've got the works of the law being foremost, the moral works. Chemnitz continues, 
For he, that is Paul, points out, Romans 3, that he is dealing with the works of the law by which sins are recognized. Verse 20 of chapter 3. But Romans 7, he ascribes that very thing to the moral law. Verse 7, and then you can see also Galatians 3.10 and 12. But the earlier statement of Moses refers to the whole law, Deuteronomy 27.26. The other... Christ applies chiefly to the moral law, Luke 10, 26-28. Thus also he expressly excludes from justification the works of the reborn done out of faith. And that's maybe the most important thing, and something that I don't think Chemnitz has paid special attention to clarifying. He hasn't spoken very or written very precisely about this particular point up until right here, where he makes a very clear distinction and one that, of course, he knows, and of course, it's all the way through the Book of Concord as well as the Scriptures, that the fruits of faith wrought by the Holy Spirit likewise do not justify. So that's the important point being brought out here, is it's not as though, oh, by the works of the law or the fruits of flesh, you could not be justified, but now by the works of the Spirit or the fruits of the Spirit, you can and are justified. That's not true. Now, those works always indicate that saving faith is present. That's the way they can be used to indicate saving faith. And the scriptures are full of examples of this. The um, wise virgins who have the oil. The oil is the fruit of their wisdom. It's the fruit of their faith. The fruits show forth the faith. But what saves? The fact that they're wise in Christ. Or the sheep and the goats, an equally familiar pattern from Christ's teaching. To those on his right, namely the sheep, he lists only the good things they've done. To those on his left, namely the goats, he lists only the ways in which they failed to do the right things. And so you can see then that while there is fruit in the action, what really determines the fruit is whether they're a sheep and the goat in the first place. And so while we can recognize, I mean, I think this too about the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, I think he's talking about fruits of faith there. Because if he's talking about the imputation of his righteousness, that's nowhere in the remainder of the sermon. But what is are the fruits of the Holy Spirit that distinguish the external righteousness of the Pharisees from the genuine ontic righteousness of the sons of God. Okay, but be that as it may, do those works themselves, do those fruits themselves justify? No, they only justify on account of faith that is there. So that's, I think that that's just a helpful way of understanding how this teaching of the scriptures, articulated so well by Martin Chemnitz, reflects then in a, in a wider variety of scriptural texts. Okay, I see that we're close enough to the point. The bacon is sizzling in the background. Thank goodness the ceremonial law has been put away. Let's close there for the day, and next week we'll pick up at question 163. The Lord be with you.